Hey everyone, David here. I'm going to get you to this week's episode of Close Reads in just a second. But first, I have to tell you about something that I am so excited about. It is a new story from the creator of the Million Plus Selling Green Ember series. It's a brand new story with an old soul. It's the can't miss first adventure in a thrilling new series. It's Jack, Zulu, and the Waylander's Key. An enchanting adventure in the tradition of Tolkien and Lewis as well as Spielberg and Lucas. But this fantastical journey launches in rural West Virginia in the 80s with a half-Appalachian, half-African kid trying to escape the town he sees defining his small, sad life. Jack discovers a gate hiding a city between 12 realms and finds out where he truly belongs in a surprising and satisfying adventure. It's written by S.D. Smith, also known as Sam around here. He wrote this with his son, Josiah, so it's a true family operation. It's a really wonderful uh, story that they're telling just in telling stories together. My kids love it. We're reading it together. And uh, if your kids love the Green Ember series but are getting you know, a bit older, this is going to be perfect for you. The pre-order is going on now. It launched on October 4th, and the book officially releases on November 15th. On November 20th, we're doing a launch party here in Concord, North Carolina, which you can learn more about at goldberrybooks.com. If you want to get this book, you can head to jackzulu.com. That's J-A-C-K-Z-U-L-U.com. Be sure to sign up for his newsletter to get access to all of the great things that SD Smith is doing. Again, it's jackzulu.com. I hope you'll check this book out because it is truly worth adding to your family's library. This episode is also brought to you by Layered Reading, a six-week intensive from the Searcy Institute taught by Andrea Lipinski. This course runs from October 20th to December 1st, which means that it has already started, but you can still sign up. You'll get access to the recording of the first classes or any classes that you miss. And in this reading intensive, Andrea Lipinski will provide teachers and readers with tools that equip readers to think about, play with, and wrestle with any text. It begins with the recognition that reading is an act of communication, of listening, in which the most most important thing is to receive the idea that has been communicated by the writer. So this intensive helps readers master the skills that enable them to perceive the logos, in short, to become a master reader. Its ultimate goal is not to help students perform better on homework and tests, though probably would help with that, but to help readers experience the deep pleasures, riches, and comforts to be found in literature and to grow in wisdom and virtue. If you're interested in this, head to searcyinstitute.org slash events to learn more. Again, that is searcyinstitute.org slash events. Okay, with that, let's get you to this week's episode of Close Reads. Hey there, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Tim McIntosh. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader on which we are discussing Heim Potok's novel, My Name is Asher Lev. And uh, we're going to discuss chapters three through five. So to the end of part one, before we get into that though, Tim... Heidi, how's it going? It's going great. Thanks, great. David. How are you? Yeah, good. It's it's busy season. It is a busy uh-huh. season, I think, for all of us. What's uh, what's new in Timville? I have been spending the last week uh, putting books on my bookshelf. My bookshelf that um, makes me happy, happy, happy. I told a friend of mine. This is back when I like my. Um, hopes and dreams were kind of set a little bit lower than they are today. But like (laughs) two or three years ago, I said to my friend, all I really want is to live in a place where when I walk out of my apartment, I walk onto a walking urban sidewalk and I can go to like my coffee shop and my laundromat, if I need a laundromat and my restaurant, and I can walk everywhere. 
all I want is that and bookshelves for my books. And I have both of those things. And I have a whole lot more. <laughs> this is very do, exciting. Do you have an actual washer and dryer? I, I even have a, a washer and dryer. You I don't even, even have don't to, need to go mat. to the yeah. laundromat. Yeah, totally. I will say the dark and a wife to do laundry for. of this scenario is Tim and I were chatting on the phone about some other business stuff this morning. And in the background, like multiple sirens, like right <laughs> in your right. ear. So, you know, right. this urban sidewalk has its own bit of darkness to it. That's right. It's yeah, a, it's it's a jungle. It is a jungle. Yep. But I'm glad your utopia is full of books. I just feel like that <laughs> is the thing that makes it a heaven on earth. Yes. Mm. Yes, yes. So that's the current happenings in Timville. What's happening in yeah, Heide what's happening with Heideberg? And Heideberg, well... Besides whatever um, business you're doing with Tim I that I'm not a part of. the mayor of Heideberg. <laughs> and um, over here... By the time this airs, this will be over, but I am um, preparing to do a webinar for Classical You tonight on the virtue of temperance and its connection to the duty and desire dichotomy. Mm. And so I was just busily preparing for that. Um, and by busily preparing, I mean Googling quotes from Thomas Aquinas. <laughs> <laughs> ah, got it. Nice. Yep. So exhaustive research happening over here. <laughs> Speaking of classical you, this would be a good time to mention uh, a little. Uh, we didn't even plan this. Little, yeah, that's true. We, we did not. We did not talk about this at all because we don't hardly talk about anything at all ahead of time. <laughs> There's this little uh, program over at classical you that uh, a particular person who's sitting here talking to us right now is is involved with. Tim, would you like to uh, say a little bit about that? We, and by we, I mean classical you and I. Um, made a video series about how to teach Shakespeare to students so that they fall in love with Shakespeare and don't just resentfully respect Shakespeare, which I think is kind of like the standard expectation for students. And I think the way from respect to love is by um, a few tricks to get students on their feet and acting out Shakespeare. And that's what my class is about. So kind of like... Not making it just an intellectual exercise. Exactly. But exactly. actually getting William Shakespeare totally did not write novels. He wrote plays and plays are embodied communal events. So let's treat them like that. So Classical You is offering something to our listeners here at Close Reads. It just made too much sense because Tim's on Close Reads and he's also on Classical You. So it just adds up. So in addition to Tim's course over there on Shakespeare... They also have 70 plus other courses, you know, on foreign languages, on pedagogy, on all kinds of things. And you can sign up using the code classical you for close reads two months or classical you for close reads one year. And of course, you can save a bunch of money by using those codes. I'll post, as I did last week, all of the, the codes in the descriptions of those in the in the description of this episode. Um, but if you want to just go over there and 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 browse, head over to classicalu.com. And uh, you can save, I think it's like 25% off mm. with this code for the whole year. And so you get Tim's course, but also that's, a lot of other things. So that's it's a pretty good deal. That's a really good yeah. deal. Yeah. So again, it's all going to be in the, uh, in the description. So check that out. Also, one other thing. I don't know if you guys know about this, Tim and Heidi. Do you know about this new podcast that Cersei is doing called The Overdue Classics? Yeah. No. I have heard a little bit about it. So, you know, there's a, you know we talk about a lot of novels here. Uh, and primarily novels, primarily novels written since like 
1700s because that's when novels are primarily written. Um, and occasionally we touch on older books than that. But they're starting a podcast on the Cersei Podcast Network that is called Overdue Classics that is focusing specifically on those old books, many of which are sometimes the lesser known books and the books that are the most uh, intimidating to to dive into. And so they're going to be doing something similar to what we're doing here. Um, it's going to be Matt Bianco, Andrea Lipinski, and Brandon LeBlanc, all old friends of ours. Um, and they're going to be you know, digging into these books. So you can you can find this podcast wherever you get podcasts. Uh, and uh, so you can also just go to circeinstitute.com slash podcasts and, and uh, check that out. But um, they're going to do, I think they're going to do some of the old Greek plays. They're going to do some Homer, I'm sure. They're going to do, um, you know, uh, probably some philosophy, knowing the fact that uh, Matt Bianco's on it, maybe some Plato somewhere along the way. But it's going to be covering a lot of those those old ones. And uh, it, I think that, it, you know, it's a great podcast to add to your to your list of literary podcasts, um, in addition to, of course, the plays, the thing, you know, for when you are done watching Tim's, Tim's course and you've right. exhausted right. all of the plays, the thing archives until he produces more. So there's exactly. just lots of great things going on up there between, uh, Cersei and classical you and, and Tim and Heidi's got this Curon thing over on classical you. So all of us are close you know, partners and, and friends. Really and it's contributing cool to, to see all the renewal, stuff going on. <laughs> okay. Speaking of renewal, uh, my name is Asher Lev. Mm -hmm. Sure. This is an interesting section because this chapter is three through five. It ends part one. At the end of this part, for those of you who maybe have gone ahead, Asher's parents have decided that he and his mother will stay in America, in Brooklyn, and their father will go to Vienna. This is in part because of, or oh, in full, because of, Asher's his behavior, the right word, his, yeah, his experiences, his condition. Yeah. It's, it's all a little bit murky as far as what's actually wrong with him as far as the, his parents and the authorities in his life are concerned. There's a couple of things I want to talk about, as I'm sure there are a couple of things that you all want to talk about. But I'm curious if you all think that this section was darker than the first section. Our friend, our mutual friend, Sean, said that he thinks... I don't want to say exactly his theory yet. I don't know if it's time to drop his theory in. And he, this was just a text message that he sent three of us. But he seemed to be saying, you know, I think this is a darker book than I remembered. Mm. Tim, you've read this before. Mm. For Heidi and I, it's, it's, it's fresh. And so for us, it's going to be more like, oh, this is dark for the first time, or this is dark in a new way. So I want to hear from Heidi on that. But first, Tim... Do you feel that there is like a darkness in this section that isn't in the first section on this reread? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's getting more and more serious. I mean, the big moment that kind of signals how dark it is and how dark it can be is when he draws a picture of the Rebbe in his, is it Chumash? Um, There's probably, probably not. But <laughs> yeah, probably not. But um, he... I mean, his classmates are horrified and his teacher is horrified and his parents and his uncle, they're all horrified. Like, what have you done? This is not like doodling in a textbook, you know? Right. Ah, come on, that's a valuable textbook. Asher, cut that out. This is like a defilement of the two pinnacle authorities in his world, the Rebbe and the book, his Torah. Mm. And to draw those pictures. And he's not even aware that he's drawing them, which is kind of additionally alarming. He just kind of like comes to, and there's this kind of angry picture drawn of 
the Rebbe, who his father reports directly to, who is kind of, you know, the hereditary leader of his Hasidic community, this is just really getting into really scary territory, especially because Asher doesn't even know that he's doing it. Right, Heidi? I mean, like, Heidi, are you wearing your, um, your kind of like psychologist hat when you read this section of my name is Asher Lev? Yeah. That's a great question. Yeah, definitely. And also my very real belief in spiritual oppression. Right. And, Mm. um, uh, like his, but yes, for sure. This was really and like such an intense section. Yes, it seemed like very, very dark to me. I mean, dark in a realistic way, not like overly dark, hide the children's eyes, but more like um, just, you just feel like what we talked about last week, you just feel the weight of this crisis on these far too frail shoulders of a child. Like this would be a lot for even mm. an adult to wrestle with the question of um, what lays primary claim in an identity um, and making very adult decisions, but it's on the shoulders of a child and that's too much. And he doesn't know what to do with it. Like for me, I just feel like this, and I said this last week too, when we talked about it, this um, very overwhelming sense of bewilderment on his behalf, like for him. Like, how, what do you make of this crisis in his life? What does it mean? Where's it coming from? Like just this fog of oppression, whether that's coming from without or within, you know, certainly depends on your interpretation of the events, but it's so intense. Should I, should mm-hmm. I say what, t- what, um, Sean yeah, why not? Texted yeah. us. This mm-hmm. was back, back on Monday, October 24th from Sean Johnson to, to our group quote. Also, I'm reading Asher Lev now. I'm not sure exactly what the also is referring to. Uh, also, I'm reading Asher Lev for a book club right now. And it's a lot darker than I remembered. As in, I'm pretty sure this kid is getting attacked by demons. And it, it was interesting to read this for the first time with somebody having kind of right. tossed that theory out there. You said, Tim, I think you said, uh, what makes you think the kid's getting attacked by demons? by demons, you know, the dark nights as a boy. And then he said, yeah, and the, the drawing black and red scribble with gray eyes and dead birds blacking out while hearing someone else scream with his voice, a totally unlikely knowledge of, of painting. But then he also says that maybe that doesn't, the whole book doesn't contain all of that stuff. I, yeah. It's really compelling idea and reading it with that in mind makes me think that it's certainly possible, but I, but I couldn't find anything that says that it's, definitively the case. So do you think that there is an answer for what's going on, Tim or Heidi? I mean, like, could I, could I address a different question before we ask that question? For me, what I like about Sean's, I don't agree with Sean's hypothesis and I'll say so. And I'll say why in a second, but what I like about it is that it kind of like, it, it has this kind of feeling of some sort of like demonic activity because Asher kind of like leaves himself. Some It feels like someone else is in control for the time being, you know? Like this happens on multiple occasions when yeah. he's speaking to right. the kind of spiritual mentor a little bit later after he defiles the book. He is just like, he's out of it. 
and his and and the man has to kind of like almost yell at him to kind of bring him back in the room. So that part of yeah, it, he seems unable to control or like recognize when he's fading into a different into right. a dream. Right, 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 right. That part of it, along with the kind of preternatural abil- artistic ability, those are like the two things that I think lend some credence to Sean's idea. The problem that I have with it is that. I think that we are supposed to see his artistic his artistic gift as a good thing. It's a rival good with the other good things that are in his life, namely his community, his beliefs, and his parents. And so it's a blessing is his artistic gift, and it's a curse. And I think the kind of like to insert the demoniac hypothesis kind of like pushes it toward just being a negative. So I would say something like, you know, Socrates Plato has this kind of vision of artists who are sort of like, um, they're kind of part divine or they have some sort of like divinity in them because they create. And where does it come from? Nobody really knows. It's kind of beyond them. But it's not like... I think they refer to it as a daemon in Plato's works, but that word daemon does not mean demonic. It's just something that is kind of um, of divinity, good or bad, but it's just something that is kind of like quasi-supernatural. It's not like a demon in the New Testament going into the pigs. Exactly. Those are, those are different kind of ideas. And, they're, and I would not be surprised. In fact, I'm almost sure that the Greek daemon existed before it was you it was it translated yes. into the Greek right as d e m o n and so those words have very similar spellings and kind of similar meanings but there's a pretty substantial difference between the two entities hmm. tim can i ask you to draw upon your knowledge of Jewish culture and belief? And do you have any knowledge of demonology, like within a Jewish context? I don't. Yeah, I don't either. I'd be really curious about that. I'd be really curious. I mean, just because I'm trying to think about um, in Torah, how much demonic activity there is. I mean, clearly there's like supernatural activity, but it's different from, I'm thinking about the story of... um, Saul, the king who goes to kind of scrutinize his future. Remember that? Uh-huh. And I mean, uh, who's the prophet? Is it Samuel at that point is just horrified that he has done this. And, and it seems like there, it's like genuine kind of like a demonic sort of. Well, he's trying um, to console He's trying to see Samuel, the future, actually. right, right. He's trying oh, that's to talk I, that's to right. Samuel. Um, and uh, so, yeah. There's definitely spiritual presences in the Old Testament. I just don't know. I, I'm not familiar with how, I mean, I know from a Christian perspective, uh, but not from a Jewish perspective. Yeah. And I'd be very curious about that. And I'd be interested if Leah Baker could yeah. maybe comment on that on the um, on the Facebook page. I think that um, she's our resident, you know, 
um, wealth of information um, on 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 Jewish tradition and belief. Um, And I'm I was I was very moved by this section, um, like I said before, because of what you're saying, Tim, like the the confusion and the darkness. And I agree completely that his even the community, even the Rebbe himself refers to his drawing as a gift, but it's a gift that the community doesn't know what to do with. Like, yeah. remember when his father said, and this was very moving to me when his father says, if you were a genius as mathematics, if you were a genius at languages, if you were a genius, genius, some way of study, right. Or, um, anything that we could understand and assimilate into, our culture and our existing community. I would be so proud of you, but this is foolishness. Um, And, and so poor Asher doesn't have any context in which to see his gift Mm. as a gift. He instinctively feels that it's a gift and he's even told it's a gift, but nobody knows what to do with it. And, and so the words, this is a gift have to mean nothing to this child because they are the actions and the response, the reaction of the community is confusing. There's a measure of judgment. um, And there's just this kind of bewildered love, even on their part, he feels himself to be a burden um, and a, uh, you know, grit in the machine, so to speak. And, uh, and yet he's so driven to it. The question I, I, I think, I love what he says that, how can it be foolish? And how can something that comes from evil be, create beauty out of the, Mm. how could it be so beautiful if it's bad? And Mm. that I think is, is the answer to whether or not it is a gift or not. Like beauty itself is never wicked. Like true mm. beauty is not wicked, but the context, the decorum, the the way beauty is, because beauty is so powerful, it, it must have boundaries around it. And there's nobody to tell this child what those are. And so it's like mm. sloppy spilling all over the place. Um, and, and that's what's so, I think, traumatizing in a way to to him whether or not there's a spiritual aspect or whether it's psychological or whether it's a combination of both i think the text supports um any interpretation i think there's a way that the demon theory can um when his father says to him um he doesn't know whether his gift come asher's gift comes from the lord of the universe or from the other side mm-hmm. um it's, it introduces the notion. Yes. Um, so obviously there is an understanding of of spiritual darkness um, and that that might be the source of the gift. And Asher rejects that out of hand. And I think rightly, um, but even if some, any gift can be distorted or misused by us, uh, its wielders or by some kind of external force. And so even if there is a measure of demonic oppression on this child, I think the text supports that. And it doesn't mean that the gift itself is wicked. It just means that it's there, that, that it's being exploited. Hmm. So the question got me thinking. So I Googled demon, demonology in, uh, I don't know. I don't remember what I Googled. The point is I got to a page on Wikipedia <laughs> that it, the word is 
Um, and I I don't know how to pronounce it perfectly right, of course. D-A-E-M-O-N? Well, it's Shadim, Shadim, S-H-E-D-I-M. And it says that they are spirits or demons in the Tanakh and Jewish mythology. However, they are not necessarily equivalent to the modern connotation of demons as evil entities. Mm. Evil spirits were thought of as the cause of maladies, conceptually differing from the Shadim, who were not evil demigods, but the foreign gods themselves. Mm. Shadim are just evil in the sense that they are not God. So then it talks a little bit about the idea of of um about that idea of having an absence of God or not being God and that there is this like it seems like there's this dichotomy I mean I'm not a scholar here but it keeps bringing up this like these clear contrasts that even were touched on in the first section when he's playing with notions of light and dark and and in the way Asher is beginning to discover light and dark in his artwork and so then the book drops that in there um and so I wonder if part of what he's doing here is it may not he may not be suggesting that there is you know actual demons going on the way you know it, it, uh, haunting him the way that you know you would get the way Sean was suggesting or that would you know someone would make a movie of but i wonder it seems to be creating these like contrasts between god and the absence of god mm. and that that's the thing that the, the parents and this whole community are consumed by. And, you know, so they're saying, they're trying to identify, like, are these drawings, is this gift of God or is it not of God? He's trying to figure out, are the drawings that I make good or are they bad? And he just doesn't, he doesn't, half the time they're not even controllable. Like he doesn't, he isn't controlling, able to control the expression that he's putting onto the page. And so he is not even sure where it came from. And so that, that question then hovers over him. And in a way it seems like whether it's demons or not, those questions are what's haunting him and the book. Right. So the question of where does this come from? Is this mm-hmm. good? I love mm-hmm. this. This is a part of me, but does that mean that I'm evil? It's that which seems to be haunting him. Yeah. And so it seems like he is being presented by all the adults in the room with this notion or with the possibility that what that his gift and what it produces is outside of God. When the whole culture is about being in line and doing the work of God. I mean, that's his, his mother has this, his mother and his father, and I guess all the adults around have this great, they're consumed with finishing the work. Her brother mm. dies with work unfinished and she believes that it is her task to finish his work. And so uh, that feeding into what he feels like is his natural work but then not knowing whether or not he's doing the work of God or, or, or work that is in counter to what his, that runs counter to what his parents and his community believe in seems to be even at this young age sort of hovering over him, but also the story. So like for us as we, as readers, we don't yet know how to interpret. I mean, we, we can bring our worldviews to it, of course, but we don't, the book is a little gray on how we're supposed to feel about all this too, because we're coming from his perspective the question of demons made me think about the notion that maybe what he's what's happening is he's being haunted by himself. Well, there's plenty of psychological trauma happening to this child that is, um, that fully explains the experience. Even the experience of drawing something he's not aware of is that's a dissociative experience. That is, I mean, that, that happens all the time. I think that our author gives us, his, to your point, his, um, Asher's 
confusion, bewilderment, his uh, his longing for his father to be home, his fear about flying and uh, his visceral rejection of the idea of moving and losing his community. Um, and, and all of that is explanation enough uh, for for a child to be in a, a, a state that's described here in this um, in this section, adding along to it the the question of his gift and what to do with that and whether or not it's going to um, be uh, to find a place in his community and whether that puts him beyond the pale. One of the things that your comment there makes me think of is I, I talk a lot like when I interview authors or talk to people who are creative types and artists or just read books about creativity. And people talk all the time about removing the self, like getting away from self-awareness, that self-awareness is is the enemy of true creativity. Like at least in the, the initial stages, you need to bring yourself back into it when you're revising or editing or whatever. And a lot of times writers and artists will talk about the idea of like, they're trying to escape their own self-consciousness and they're trying to enter that zone, right? The zone where you don't, realize well, all the things that are happening around you. It's like Michael Jordan talked about it with sports, right? Like he'd get in that zone and then he'd come out of it at the end. He is like, he had a, a what it was an Aristea. <laughs> and then he comes out of it and he's like, Oh, it's like, he like regained a consciousness because he had entered like a different creative plane on this basketball court. And it's like some artists would kill to have these moments that this this poor kid is having where his consciousness is stripped bare. And it's just like coming out of the coming out of, he, you know, like the, it's coming, just it's just flowing out of him and he doesn't have anything telling him to stop or this is bad until he exits it. And so I, I wonder if, he, if Potaku himself not is a painter and, and a writer, of course, is and, and like how creativity works, but like th- th- this kid trying to figure out how to process all that. What I really appreciate about what the way that Potok describes that kind of the creation is that what Asher feels shows up in the work. Yeah. And like he has these moments where he's looking out, the Mashpi is talking to him and he's looking out at his street and it's raining and he's saying, why is my, why is my street raining? Or excuse me, why is my street crying? And it seems to me pretty clear that like, well, Asher is the one who's so sad and he is kind of like, his feelings are being painted onto the scene that he's looking at. And I think that's this is what happens with the Rebbe. The reason that he has the Rebbe looking so angry is because Asher is angry at the Rebbe for taking his father, or for potentially taking his father away from him. And there's no editing or very little editing being done by Asher. What he is feeling is coming out through his art. Yeah. And yeah, David, like that's the thing. I, I've taken um, an acting class and almost every acting class is focused on solving one problem. That problem is how do you stop editing yourself? Like how do you, um, when you're playing a role allow what you feel to come out without thinking, well, how's this going to look to the audience? Because the audience picks up on that and it looks like falsehood, you know? So yeah, I can totally, this is like, it's torture for Asher, 
but this is kind of the zone that um, a creative person or an athlete wants to be in. Yeah. He has these arist- this like moments of aristea of the paintbrush. Mm. And it's like, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of truth coming out of that, but it is very experiential. And so that means that everyone else around him is trying to say, okay, we see the experience coming out, but what is the truth of that experience that has come out? And mm-hmm. what does that mean? Like, mm-hmm. And therefore, like, what is wrong with him? Yeah. And what's interesting is that you get like very different responses to his work by different people, like the boy in the classroom who just like completely yeah. flips out. And then you've got like his mom and his dad, they respond differently. And his uncle responds with this sense of awe, right? And so everybody's kind of responding in, in their own way based on their own concerns. Mm. And I find that to be really interesting because in a way that even reveals more how gifted he actually is. His his work is, even at this young age, is not just one note. It's It's eliciting a variety of responses from a variety of people based on their own fears and yeah. anxieties and hopes and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Speaking of which, Heidi, what do you, do you think that, uh, uh, Aria and what is it? Aria and Rivka. Rivka. Uh, do you think that they're bad parents? No, I really don't. I kind of want to because there's, there's such a toll on their son, but it's very clear that they love him. Mm so deeply and don't know how to help him. And they're just as torn between their religious community and vocation and uh, their love for him, their parental love for him. Um, I think for, for Rivka, you can see her fear just bleeding everywhere, right? She's so afraid she's going to lose her family. Um, and for Aria, it's more complicated maybe, uh, but just as shattering, which is he has this very ordered world. He's doing good. He's helping the Jewish community. He's, he has a ministry, right? And, and his son is the only obstacle to that. And what is he supposed to do with that? Because he loves his son. And so it's a, it's everybody's in an identity crisis, um, everybody is rising and falling by, uh, their Jewish identity, um, and trying to figure out what to do with their humanity as compared to that, their frailty is compared to that. And, and that the biggest struggle seems to be with parenting. And yet I still think they are good parents because of their love for their son, and he doesn't ever seem to question that. He he wants more attention. He wants his dad to be home more. All of these things that are perfectly valid. And they miss him in a lot of ways. But their their love for him seems strong, unshakable. And therefore, I can't completely discount them as parents and say that they're failing. They're just human. Heidi, do you have a sense of, um, or could you describe what the, the tactics of each parent are because they seem a little bit different. The tactics of kind of like what they want for Asher. They both clearly want him to go um, on this journey to Vienna. They want him to be healthy, those sorts of things. But it seems like there's a little bit of a difference. Could you Mm. articulate what you see as far as their... I think it's a pretty, I mean, I think that's a pretty typical mother-father difference that... 
you know, Rivka is truly, she is a mother and a wife first. She wants her family to be safe and she lost her brother and is terrified she's going to lose her husband and her son. And the terror isn't wholly unfounded. Her husband travels all the time and his first love is clearly his work and he that he believes in and her son is in psychological crisis all the time so she could very well lose them both and didn't she and lose I think her just, brother because yes. the rebbe like he was also doing the rebbe's work on a mission he got yeah. in a car accident when he was doing the the work um which there's no way the rebbe could have foreseen that that's right. not his fault um and that happens it happens like loss happens all the time but she's consumed by it you know the asher so focused all the time on his mother's fragility like her fragility of her body and her soul right um and that she just, she's too fragile for this world. It's not a pretty world. Mm. And that makes sense because he just lives through these years or months or whatever it is where she's on the, she's never around and she's. Yeah. On the edge of madness. On the edge of madness. And so he, and so now he would, he naturally would be on the lookout for that. Right. And that would, right. it, he's like seven years old when that happened. How does that not color how you see the world? Mm. Right. No pun intended um, in this case. No, no, that's right. And then, but his father, on the other hand, is he's trying to be, he's trying to do good work, right? He's trying he's, to be noble. Yeah. And he, and there is a real need and he's a great man, right? And he is, and, and it's, it must be so confusing for him that his family is impacted by his work. And he can't seem, he, he, he just always seems in this He's trying so hard to do the right thing as a husband and as a father and mm. in his vocation in a really troubled time in history and um in an embattled community. And yeah. um and he can't reconcile that, right? Like he cannot, he's he's just as torn as Asher is, and so is Rivka, right? All of them are torn between these competing forces and trying to reconcile that and truly love each other. Um and don't know what to lay down and what to fight for. And um, they all seem very confused. But I think that it, to your question, Tim, to me, it seems like a pretty typical, if, I mean, if exaggerated, kind of like male, female, mother, dichotomy. male, female yeah. thing. Yeah. yeah. I see it the same way. I don't know. Way. Do you have any? Yeah. No, I, I just see, I see it the same way. I see it is um, kind of classic masculine feminine, you know? In all of its like best and worst aspects. Hmm. There's that moment that I found really moving where he's visiting his uncle and his uncle's trying to explain to him, your father's doing great work. The Rebbe wouldn't give him this work. Yeah. And the brother like looks off in the distance and it says, he's like, my little brother is a, is a great man. Mm-hmm. And it says that he like looks off into the distance sort of wistfully or however. And that's, first of all, that's moving in and of itself. Mm. But then, but then for... Asher, that seems to be something where he he's beginning to get a glimpse at how, uh, how other people think of his father, yeah, and what that means for him, and and all that. But Tim, I've got, I want to I want to ask you this in a different way, yeah. If that's okay, I want to. Can you? I want to. Can I just piggyback on one thing you just said, yeah. David? Yeah, yeah. One we'll come the, back to my question for one you. One of yeah. the other things that I really like is when the uncle is kind of talking theologically, saying. um, 
you know, it is our belief that when one Jew is suffering, the entire community is suffering. Yeah. And don't you see your father is trying to relieve the suffering of these people who are in the Ukraine mm-hmm. or who are subject to who are subject to Stalin? And I love Asher's response. What about me? Am I not a Jew? What about me? And I think that right there, his mother, if she heard that, would say, yes, my allegiance is with you. And I think his father would say, my allegiance is with you. My allegiance is also with my people. You know, it's like, I think it's a little bit easier for his mom to have proximity and to have deliberate proximity with her son. I think it's a little bit easier for his mom than for his dad. His dad feels this drive of duty, right, Heidi? This drive of duty that he cannot put down as much as he loves and wants to have proximity to his son. Hmm. That must be so complicated. Oh I mean, my gosh. For anybody, you know, this is this is something very human, I think, where how many people and how many people in stories, let alone real life, are especially stories about children are sort of defined in their growing up by a parent who is either driven completely by duty or swallowed by desire. Mm. Like in either way, the child caught in the wake of one of those two drives is going to be how how can that not yeah. change them and alter them? Tim, I want to I do, do want to come back to this. I'm, I hope this isn't too personal of a, yeah. of a way of phrasing this. For you've got. A, f- a growing family now, right? Right. And I'm curious, like in in light of that, how reading about Asher and reading this book again mm-hmm. is different for mm-hmm. you. If I can, if I can ask that. Yeah, I th- I have thought about. Let's just talk about her as my daughter. For some reason, I'm just convinced that we're having a daughter. I know. Don't ask me why. I just know. Why are you going to name her if she's a? D- oh, she, I, she's a I I am under sworn secrecy for that. We are, we think we know. We're not all the way there, but if my- Umbelina. <laughs> That's right. How did you know? <laughs> Lucky guess. Lucky guess. Um, if my daughter was going through something that Asher is going through, oh my gosh, I would be positively terrified, right? You know, I'd be just be so scared. But there's this other thing that I think about, like- um, so much of life for a person that has a clear religious community. And I don't just mean like a neighborhood community. I do mean a kind of a family community, but especially like a religious community that is tight. This question of um, fealty to the community, fealty to, let's say, oneself, that is a thorny dilemma. And I hope that nobody hears when I say fealty to oneself, like some sort of like modern individualist, I just got to be me. No, I mean like, um, imagine that you had this sort of gift that Asher Lev has, and it is not understood by the people who you love and respect and revere and who love and respect and revere you. Um, do you choose to sublimate that gift for the sake of the peace of your community? That's not an easy choice at all. Not an easy choice at all. And so when I think about if my daughter was ever in a situation like that, 
That's not an easy choice. I hope I have a good enough relationship with her that we can like talk about it. It'd be right. weird if she's a boy and listens to this in 20 years. <laughs> it will be. Carl. Yeah. <laughs> did you say Carl? Yeah. Just came How right. did you know? You've gotten two out of two. How did you know? Carl McIntosh. Carl Dwayne. <laughs> K- KDM. You could do worse. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. You definitely could do worse than that. Katie M. Just for all our Carl Dwayne's who are listening. <laughs> One of the things about the duty-desire dichotomy that I really like in this book is that the the duty that Arya... Uh, is that how you pronounce it? Arya, I'm, that's how I'm pronouncing it. That he has for the Jewish people to serve them, that's what you, the two of you were just describing, seems to mirror in some ways Asher's own obsession with his place he's mm, like he's, right. he's he is his father's son he, he's like he is obsessed with the street right he doesn't want to leave there is some of it is like fear right he doesn't want to have to start over and all the things that children go through but he he sees the beauty of the street that he lives on and and he has an obsession for capturing it even if he wouldn't put it that way and that the, the way that mirrors Arya's and and Rivka's desire to dutifully serve the larger Jewish community is really interesting. Do you think, do you think that the book is suggesting in any way that it it is trying to contrast their two senses of duty or whatever? Like, do you think that um, Aria, the the book seems to be suggesting that Aria's duty is, um, misplaced and that he is he is that in prioritizing his what he believes is his calling over his son that that's a flaw and that Asher's aesthetic way of looking at his place is actually better or am I reading too much into that I think I want to hear Heidi talk about this that's my my dog. Um, I think that, yes, the book is giving us all of these competing forces all the time um, within Asher, within the family, within the community, and their spiritual identity. Um, and uh, and that's a universally human thing. We all struggle with that. But there's something... Um, particularly, as you just said, Tim, relevant about a religious community wrestling with this, these questions. Um, and we know that he was inspired by Brideshead and the mm. same kind of thing happens in Brideshead, right? Great point. Um, there's all of these competing forces uh, that that are pitted against Catholicism. And, and, um, mm-hmm. and then we are, we are made to wrestle. If the Catholic vision of life is true, then this is what Sebastian should do. This is what Charles should do. If the Catholic vision of reality is not true, then poor Catholic, poor, you know, poor Charles and Sebastian are being abused by the terrible patriarchal system, right? Um, mm. And the same kinds of questions I think are brought up in this book. Um, this they, the power of Jewishness is so meaning making in this family and in this community. Um, and, and there would be no conflict of the story if they were not Jewish, right? Um, 
And so uh, can Asher's gift be assimilated, be uh, be oriented towards the community, or is it always the enemy of the community? And if it if it can become a part of it, then who will show him how to do that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And um, if he was a a child, if he was a secular child, there would be no conflict, right? Yeah. And um, right. we know that that's even directly alluded to when his mother says, when he says, does anybody care? Is anybody listening to me? And she says, we're all listening to you. If we mm-hmm. weren't listening to you, this would there be There wouldn't easy. be a problem. Yeah. Right? Yeah. If we didn't love you, we'd just pick you up. Essentially saying, if we didn't love you, if we weren't listening to you, we'd pick you up and force you to Vienna. Absolutely. So, like that, these these competing forces are striking against each other and pushing and pulling. And just like every great novel, the the burden of interpretation is not on the novelist. It's on me as the reader, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, what do I think mm-hmm. about this? Like, mm-hmm. um, and 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 we are forced to wrestle through a ten year old boy's eyes through all of these things that are bigger than him and, um, and, and bigger even than the adults in his life. And none of them know exactly what to do. Even the Rebbe is like, there's that, that scene when the Rebbe is just looking at him in synagogue and like a way, you know, even, even he, this, this arbiter, right. Um, is, is weighing in his hands uh, the cost on this child of mm. the vocation of his father. Um, so what do I think that his father should do? I don't know. I think 10 years ago, I would have had a stronger opinion of it. Now I have, now I realize that I do not know what I know. I know nothing. What, cha- what changed <laughs> in the last 10 years? Why par- would you? I guess being a parent, like 10 mm. years ago, I would have said through my own childhood wounds and my own strong opinions that a father's vocation can go to the wall when mm. a child is when a child is suffering. Um, now I think that's too dogmatic. I go to the mall. Mall. Go to the mall. You can take. Yeah. You can take yeah. that career and go to the mall. Yeah. Sell some sunglasses. <laughs> yep. With your child, <laughs> like, um, but like that, a child is a, a particular love is more important than a universal love, mm. and I think I still believe that. But I also am less dogmatic about that than I used to be. Tim, what do you think? Um, I'm thinking about that Martin Luther King Jr.'s boyhood home um, is about two blocks away from where I live. And we went on a tour probably six months ago of that boyhood home. And um, you know, the tour guy was talking about the toll that his task there was a toll on Martin Luther King Jr.'s family. Yeah. Of course. How could there not be? And I'm sure that his children would have had happier lives had he dropped out of the civil rights movement. You know? Like, he, they just would not have suffered a lot of the things that they suffered because of their dad's choice. I'm really glad that he didn't drop out, you know? And I, I would mm-hmm. think that if we were part of the Jewish community in 1950s in Brooklyn and Arya faced the possibility of dropping out to him for his son, we would say, no, no, may it not be, you know? You know, this is so interesting because when you go back to the bride's head question, those children are suffering 
in the wake of their parents doing the opposite. So like Lord Bridesaid, the father, not Bride, he like basically just follows his passions, right? Yeah. And he he doesn't he doesn't remain dutiful to anything that he had believed in. And so they suffer and they suffer like a, a sort of dissonance in the wake of that. Right. And this yeah. is and the, here it's like it's the opposite of that. The the father is going to Europe just like in Brideshead. Well, I mean, you know, from New York instead of from England, but he goes to like in Brides Lord Lord Brideshead goes to live in Italy, right? And like follow his passions and he has a mistress and all that. And here we have the you know, we have Arya going to Europe and following his duty, his what he mm. believes is his calling. And mm. it's it doesn't seem to me it doesn't seem to me that the sort of dissonance that Asher is having is the same as the sort of dissonance as say Sebastian or Julia is having in Brideside. What do you think about that, Heidi? Do, do you see like a difference there because of perhaps because of the choices that the parents are making in like opposite, I don't want to say opposite extremes, yeah. but opposite directions. Yeah. I think what you said is right. And I think it speaks particularly to this particular, um, I want to say brand, um, this particular Jewish community Tradition. Like, that is, yeah, that's defined by its duty to God and Torah and, um, and is in a time representing their oppressed history in, in a troubled time in history mm. when they are embattled and attacked. Mm. And, um, and so how could they not be then defined by duty? Mm. And also there's no room to be a huge, yeah, to follow your desires. Right, yeah. There's no, yes. Whereas there is in mid-century upper-class aristocratic Great Britain, right? It's a different kind of Catholic culture than we have as this Jewish culture. Uh, the the thing that is the same is the religious, communal, all-encompassing identity in a hostile world in which the people within that community are defining themselves by their, their own strong identity and the fact that that identity is not accepted outside mm -hmm. its boundaries. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the and that's a huge part of of this Jewishness in Brooklyn right now. Mm -hmm. Um and and you know there is the master of the universe and there is the other side and there is no meeting of the two and there's no overlap. Um and uh and and that's uh and that is that makes a psychic and a psychological impact as well as a religious one. In Brideshead, one of the things that, that marks that dissonance is that the father goes off following his passions and the mother is left trying to dutifully recreate the tradition or cling to the tradition for on behalf of the children. And here we have the father following the duties and the mother not being like Lady mm -hmm. Marchmain in Brideshead where she is this sort of harsh character, but here trying to trying to find a way to to give him some affection and the support that he needs and here right. we, and so you wonder you know is 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 with the wrong choices by his parents does does Asher become Sebastian in 10 years it's like right. you know they're but for the grace of god i mean and and then the grace right. of god in bride's head is obviously a very complicated question but. right <laughs> well and, and and to add to that one of the questions that we discussed 
very deeply, as I know you all remember at the retreat was whose fault is that, Mm. right? Is that, uh, does that, if that were to happen, and this is something I think inherent in what you just said, Tim, um, about, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and his family and the the difficult questions that are faced uh, by Arya and and Rivka here and their whole community, which is if, if some, if their son is to be lost, does that mean that it's their Mm. fault? Like what responsibility is that? Like, um, you know, we were just talking about East of Eden and the idea of Tim Shell and the sins of the father uh, and the radical choice that each individual has to determine their own destiny in spite of the sins of the father, mm. right? And um, like for Asher, of course, as a 10-year-old boy, he feels like these are all forces outside of his control. Yeah. And to a certain extent, that's true in a child, but that's not true in an adult, there comes a point in which we reach the age of accountability to use a specifically Catholic term, right? Um, and 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 we are responsible for the choices we make, no matter what burdens are laid on our backs. And if something like the King family, in which the children ended up following in their father's footsteps, embracing his vision of reality and making a massive impact on the world for good, that doesn't always happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and the jury's still out for Asher, as far as I've read. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One of my favorite aspects of this book is um, how kind the community is to Asher, even when they don't understand. So I'm thinking of the doctor who treats him is very kind and gentle. He's asking questions, you know, um, the Mashpia also who knows what, how Asher defiled the book and defiled the Rebbe by drawing him so angrily. Um, the uncle, I mean, the uncle's family, I guess, but the uncle is also just so gentle with Asher. And it makes the complicated nature of Asher's plight even more electric. Because it would be so easy. We would just be rooting for it. If the community just dismissed him And, you know, oh, he's a troublemaker or whatever, you know, whatever label they want to put on him. If they did that, then we as readers would be wanting for Asher to kind of like break free, get rid of them, Asher, go your own way. Mm. That's not what we want, you know, in a strange way. I mean, I think that we want Asher to be Mm. well, right? Yeah. Like, I think that's where we are in the book. We want Asher to be well. Okay. What does that look like? <laughs> like, what does that, what is the solution to Asher being well? Because if he just suffocates his gift, he won't be well. If he right. rejects his community, he won't be well. Right. So what, yeah. how is this book going to resolve? That's, I mean, that, that's as great a place as any to end this conversation because I think that's mm. the question that we're at. Now, his father's leaving. He and his mother are there. And this next phase of his... I mean, the book has a clear part break here, right? Yeah, yeah, and, and, right. And that's the question, what you're asking, the way you framed it so perfectly, so neatly, I think is is what what the book's le- leave, leading us towards next. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was really nicely, nicely said, really nicely laid out. Don't you agree, Heidi? Oh, Heidi's muted. So now she... <laughs> 
I'm nodding. So now it seems like she disagrees. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, Heidi, do you want to add anything else onto that before we go? No, no. I think that's the perfect place to end. I agree. (laughs) (laughs) Tim, um, do you have anything else you want to add before we go? No. No. Okay. Well, uh, you know, take care of uh, Carl. Um, make sure your wife. <laughs> make sure your wife is taking taking her uh, vitamins. I will. How is she doing, by the way? She. We've got some like stuff going on in our family, our extended family. That's just mm. hard. It's not. It's not. It's just a hard time for her. But like yeah. the pregnancy, as far as we know, everything seems like it's going well. So we're happy. So she's second, mid second trimester. Yes. Yes. So is she feeling 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 okay? Feeling she good? feels good, and I think we're kind of dreading third trimester because first trimester was kind of a lot of nausea. Well, it won't be summer. You guys dodged a oh, bullet no there doubt. in Atlanta. No <laughs> doubt. Oh yeah. 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 True. We were going to move to Colorado, Heidi. We we're going to like live in your basement. Oh man! See, <laughs> now I feel like the bullet hit you after all. You, <laughs> you could have been there when I know. Carl Thumbelina was born. Yeah. I know. I was really happy for her. Carl for a minute, Thumbelina Dwayne. <laughs> Dwayne. <laughs> all right. Well, tell her, tell her hello. Yeah. Um, Heidi, on, a, on the opposite end of the spectrum, how does, how is reading this book impacting being a parent of teenagers next week on Close Reads? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I know. Right. No, I've been thinking a lot about that. It happens, you know, you get to this age when you're reading that you stop you identify with the older generation yeah, in a right. book just as much as it's with like the when you're watching generation. sports and all of a sudden you're older than the old people on sports. <laughs> right? Exactly. That's kind of yeah. So I'm I'm reading this as a mother as well yeah, as yeah, you yeah. know, remembering my own childhood. Yeah. We've been dealing with some things with some of our kids. Not not like dark like this book seems to be saying, right. but just kind of coming into their individualism stuff. Mm. And I don't mean like in a rebellious sort of way, in like a discovering the world is not always nice. Discovering the, right. when, it's not a pretty sometimes world. Sometimes anxi- anxieties yeah. and things get introduced. And so we're kind of embarking on that. And it, I've been reading it as we're kind of going through a an experience with one of our mm-hmm. kids. Mm. They don't listen to this, but they might in 20 years mm. alongside right. Carl. Um, and on their uh, Children of Close Reads people retreat um that they're going to have in 20 years and discuss discuss all of <laughs> all of our parenting uh can't wait for that so yeah so it's been interesting reading from that perspective i'm sure a lot of our listeners have lots of thoughts on that as well and um so all right guys this has been fun it's been real fun yeah i know Next, I, I love this, this book. book is so good i just want to so say good. i am crazy about yeah this book. i'm so glad that you like it yeah yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, thanks for being an, an advocate for it. I mean, I know we had the, the, the people who were, you know, nominating it and so forth, but you, uh, were a big advocate for it, uh, Tim. So yeah. Yeah. Appreciate that. Uh, we're going to discuss, um, what is it? Uh, chapter six through nine. No, yes. Six through nine next. So, um, that will be dropping the Monday after Thanksgiving for those of you who are, we get confused. I get confused because of when we actually record and then drop the episodes, but this six through nine next, that'll go up on Monday, uh, the 28th. So, all right. Well, good luck with all your other endeavors, y'all. Heidi, good luck tonight with your, uh, with your webinar. Thanks, Tim. Ah. Good luck writing the next, uh, great American play. (laughs) 
Thank you. Yep. Uh, for Tim McIntosh, for Heidi White, for little Carl, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs> Until next time, happy reading. <laughs>